We continue our sermon series in the Gospel of John, so if you would turn to John chapter 7. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you'll find the scripture printed on your sermon guide in your order of worship so that you can follow along. John chapter 7, verses 1 to 13, and then 32 through 39. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And then over to verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek him, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go? that we will not find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. In the movie Castaway, if you've seen it, it's a movie about uh, Chuck Nolan, who is a top engineer for FedEx, and he was on a plane that uh, crashed in the ocean. And he was on a a little raft. He was the only one that survived the crash, and he floated to this island, uh, which was going to be the beginning of his life for uh, years to come. But after the first day, obviously, he was incredibly thirsty, and there's that scene where, you know, coconuts have been falling from the trees, so he picks one up and tries to get it open. He throws it on the ground. Um, He he smashes it with a rock. Uh, He even tries to, to drill it to get it open. He can't get it open. Uh, to get some juice from the inside to quench his thirst. And then finally, he finds that, that sharp rock that acts as an ax. And he, he finally gets this, this coconut open. And, and when he does, all of the juice spills out on the ground. It's the beginning of a, what is a gut-wrenching movie in many ways. But when, that, when, the, when, the, when the juice sp- spills out on the ground, he, he picks up a, a husk of the coconut and you see him just <laughs> looking for a drip just a drip to fall on his tongue. 
And that scene is a, is a vivid picture of how our spiritual thirst works. We're all thirsty, and we're going to get into it here in a second. We're thirsty, and, and, we, and we search for something to quench that thirst, and we work so hard to get something in this world that's going to quench it, and then we finally get it, and it's like, it's like a drop of water. We continue our search. At the, at the climax of this passage, Jesus stands up and cries out in a loud voice, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, it begs the question, thirst for what? When Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, what's he talking about? Thirst for what? And then how does Jesus quench that thirst? The question we're going to answer is, what thirst do you have that Jesus needs to quench? And we're going to see in this passage a, a thirst for comfort, a thirst for hope, and a thirst for purpose that gets quenched. So let's start with the thirst for comfort. Verse 2 tells us that it's the Feast of Booths, and, and the first 13 verses are talking about this feast that the disciples are going to, they want Jesus to go to. Well, what was the Feast of Booths? Let me just speak broader for a second. Uh, Israel celebrated these feasts throughout the annual calendar year that, that really remembered and commemorated a way that God had provided for them graciously and with blessing. Uh, think similar to our country. We have national holidays that celebrate moments in our history. Right? We're coming up on one, Thanksgiving. Right When the, the pilgrims arrived in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and then that first great harvest they had, they celebrated right, with Thanksgiving. We've got Independence Day, or Fourth of July, which celebrates our birth, right, our birthday as a country. In a similar way, Israel had these feasts, and they were celebrations. And this one was one of the, the biggest ones, called the Feast of Booths. Now, what was it? Well, it remembered the time where... Uh, their ancestors were in the wilderness wandering after they were delivered from Egypt and before the promised land, as we looked last week. In the wilderness wanderings, they literally, day after day, night after night, they would pack up their tent, get to their next place, put the tent up, or a booth. That's why it was the Feast of Booths. And then God himself would travel with them in his own tent, so to speak, called the tabernacle. It's the portable temple. And so that was what the Feast of Booths was. And, and so the, the Jews would come to Jerusalem and they'd gather and they would all put up their tents, okay? Uh, like, maybe a little bit like next Friday night, some of you are gonna put a tent up out in the woods, okay? Israel did this for 40 years. And so this feast was to celebrate and remember their time in the wilderness when they put up these tents and were traveling in the wilderness. Now, at the end of this week, Right? Their feasts were a week long, and these were parties. They were celebrations. At the end of the week, there was this ceremony that was of particular significance. It was kind of the culmination of the week. And uh, the priests would walk from the temple down to the pool of Siloam, and they would have a pitcher, and they would fill the pitcher with water, and the crowds would follow them. This was a big deal. And they'd come back up to the temple, and they'd come to the altar in the temple and the priest would pour the water out around the altar. And they would go crazy. They would start dancing, and they'd start celebrating. You say, why? What was the significance? 
Well, this water drawing ceremony pointed to several significant realities in Israel's life, their history, and their future. Right? And the first that we see is it pointed to Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, we read the story of God's people in the wilderness, in their tents, right? who had become hungry, and they needed water, and they were thirsty. And so in their thirst and their hunger, they started grumbling and complaining against Moses and saying, Moses, what have you done? Have you taken us from Egypt out here to die of thirst? And then Moses says to God, God, what do I do? These people are about to stone me. And God says, Moses, take your staff. I want you to take your staff and I want you to strike the rock that I lead you to. And when you strike that rock, it is gonna gush water. And that's exactly what happened. Water started flowing freely and they drank abundantly from this rock in the desert. The Apostle Paul explains what was really happening in this event, but also the broader wilderness experience in 1 Corinthians 10. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 4. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. The cloud was the, the pillar of cloud that led them through the desert during the day, pillar of fire at night. We were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. That's the Red Sea, miraculous Red Sea parting. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. See what Paul's saying. Their physical provision of water had a spiritual reality that they were drinking from Christ, the Messiah to come, that they were drinking from Christ. And so Jesus, at the end of this week-long feast of booze that they had been celebrating for years and years and years, when the priest came in and was pouring the water around the altar, signifying at least in part what had happened in Exodus 17, God's provision, lavish, abundant provision, Jesus stands up probably about the same time that, that water's being poured out and he, and he cries out in a loud voice, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. See, Jesus was, was, was fulfilling what happened in Exodus 17 and, and saying what Paul had said, that I am the rock. You were drinking from me, that I'm the Messiah. So let me go back there to the Exodus 17 event. What was really happening in the wilderness in Exodus 17, when they drank from that rock and the broader experience around that. Because Paul explains it even further in 1 Corinthians 10, what was really happening in that moment with God's people. So he leads them, God leads them into the desert where there's not much food, not much water. They're hungry, they're thirsty, and God keeps leading them further and further in. You can see why they said, Moses, have you brought us out here to kill us? We wanna go back to Egypt where we at least knew where the meal was coming from. Yes, slavery was tough, but we knew where our food was coming from. You can see why they were, they were feeling this. Listen to what Paul describes as the real problem was, what their real problem was in the wilderness in verses seven to eight of 1 Corinthians 10. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, 
We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. You see what God says, that they committed idolatry, which means that they took the, the, the physical provisions of God, even in those verses, what did we see? Food, drink, play, recreation, entertainment, sex. They took those and those provisions from God became ultimate realities that replaced God. That's all idolatry is. Idolatry takes the good things from God and makes them ultimate where we begin to worship them. And so the Israelites, what they did in the desert is they took the, the water from the rock and the, the manna, the bread on the ground and the quail for me, all that God was providing for them. They started seeking comfort in those things and not God himself. That's idolatry. They started seeking comfort in the food, the drink, the play, the sex, and finding comfort there. You know, when, when pain hits, we seek comfort. That's natural. When the pain of life hits, when the hard of life hits, when the difficult of life hits, we seek comfort. It's natural. It's what it means to be human. In fact, when pain hits your life and you seek comfort, that is just simply a confession of your heart to say, things aren't right. This world isn't right. My life's not right. So seeking comfort's not the problem. In fact, that's a God-given desire. The problem is when we seek comfort from our pain in the things of this world that God gives us and not in God himself or not in Christ himself. So what does that look like? You can begin to seek comfort in sexual pleasure in the midst of your pain, which can lead to a secret life of pornography. You can seek comfort in a glass of wine at night that becomes two glasses of wine, that becomes three glasses of wine, that becomes a bottle of wine a night to, to, to numb your pain. Uh, you can seek comfort in, in shopping and buying stuff, whether it's in stores or on the internet, you can just buy, 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 purchase, purchase, purchase. That's, that's a way you can seek comfort in the midst of your pain and try to numb it which ends up in maybe credit card debt. You're just spending money you don't have. You can seek comfort in, in eating. You know, interesting, all the, in verses seven to eight of 1 Corinthians 10 that Paul lists, food, drink, play, recreation, sex, you can see how all of those, you can seek after those to, to find comfort in the midst of your pain. And when you seek to numb your pain or deal with your pain through those things, it's incredibly dangerous because you actually multiply your pain without even knowing it. It's like a, it's like a sinkhole. I was reading a, a documentary about the National Corvette Museum in Bowling Green, Kentucky, back in 2014. They had a massive sinkhole that literally swallowed the design floor of this museum and eight. Uh, collectible Corvettes over the years literally were swallowed into the earth. And it happened at 5.30 in the morning. And so nobody was there. No visitors, no employees. They caught it on security camera. You can YouTube it and look. It's fascinating to watch. But, but what happened is the night before when employees left and visitors left, the museum was fine. And they got there the next morning in utter destruction. 
When you seek comfort for your pain in the, the things of this world that God gives graciously and not in him, you start to create a sinkhole in your soul that if left unchecked will eventually collapse and swallow you. That that's the inevitable end of seeking comfort for your pain in the things of this world. And, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, he says there's a way of escape. He says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And then he says, flee idolatry. In other words, please, Paul's saying, he's urging the church in Corinth, flee this seeking your comfort and the things of this world. And then he goes on a step further and he says, he talks about the Lord's Supper, about participation in the body and blood of Christ. And he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And then he says, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. You see what he's saying there? Is that the only place you're gonna find comfort is in a, in a dynamic relationship with Christ, which is what the Lord's Supper is about, and one bread, one people in community. Dynamic relationship with Christ, dynamic relationship with his people. My friend sent me an article this past weekend, or this past week, it was a Gospel Coalition article titled "The Pattern Among Fallen Pastors," and it had researched 200 plus pastors who had fallen into moral failure, and fallen out of the ministry, and fallen basically out of Christ. And the reason I share this with you is because it's not just about pastors; it's about anyone who's in Christ. Two common things they found amongst all these people who had fallen away. Here they are. Number one, none of them were involved in any kind of real personal accountability. In other words, they were in complete isolation. And number two, they had all but ceased having a daily time of personal prayer, Bible reading, and worship. Your thirst for comfort is quenched in a dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ and in a dynamic relationship with his people in community, people that know you, that love you, that keep you from moving into secret places of isolation. That's how your comfort, your thirst for comfort is quenched. So what thirst do you need Jesus to quench? First, your thirst for comfort. Second, your thirst for hope. The Feast of Booze, it remembered uh, this time in Israel's history when they were going through the wilderness. And, and that was a time of scarcity. It was a time of, of emptiness. But the Feast of Booze was also at the end of the harvest season. It was right at the, the, the pinnacle of the harvest season. So it celebrated the harvest of primarily grapes and olives. And so it was also this picture of fullness and flourishing. So you had this wilderness metaphor of emptiness and scarcity. You had this harvest metaphor of flourishing and of fullness. And then you had this water drawing ceremony at the end of the week that I've described, that as they poured that water around the altar, it not only pointed to Exodus 17, but it pointed to Ezekiel 47. And what we read in Ezekiel 47 is that Ezekiel, the prophet, was brought into exile with God's people into Babylon. And in Babylon, 
God's people were in exile. It was a place of harshness. It was a place where they were away from home. It was the hard of life, the difficult of life. And it was in exile that God said to Ezekiel, I want you to speak these words into my people, to give them hope in the midst of the wilderness of exile. And so Ezekiel then begins speaking this, this hope to them. And he talks about a river of water flowing from the threshold of the temple. The temple, God's presence among his people. This river starts flowing and he says, first it's ankle deep, then it's knee deep, then it's waist deep, then it's a river that was deep enough to swim in. You say, what does this mean? Listen to what this water does from Ezekiel 47 verse eight. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the Dead Sea. Then the water flows into the sea. The water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh. And listen to this. So that everything will live where the river goes. You know, the Dead Sea is so full of salt content that it can't support fish and aquatic life. There aren't even plants or trees along the Dead Sea because of the layers of salt. And so what Ezekiel is saying here is there is a supply of fresh water that's gonna come and make this Dead Sea teeming with life. Fish, aquatic life, plants, trees. And it's at the end of this feast, as that priest comes back with the pitcher of water, and when he would pour it out, he'd do it up high so everybody could see. And if he, had, if he didn't raise it high enough, they said, raise it up, so they could see the water pour out. And in their mind, they're going to places like Exodus 17, but also Ezekiel 47, this message of hope that water's coming to bring healing and to renew life and to bring flourishing. And in that moment, Jesus stands up and cries out. Basically, I am the river of living water. I'm the fulfillment of Ezekiel 47. Where the river flows, there's life. Guess what? Where I flow, there's life. Verses 38 and 39 of John 7 say that the, the living water is the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit. That where the Spirit flows, there is life. Death replaced with life. Emptiness replaced with fullness. Healing to bind up the brokenness. And yet we forget this, don't we? I would imagine for those of you that have been through significant seasons of difficulty, significant seasons of, of, of trial where life is just hard, those seasons can, can prolong so far that sometimes you forget what flourishing can even look like, let alone even believe that it can happen. You lose hope that there can be any change Case in point with Jesus' audience in John 7. If you look at verses 22 to 23, listen to what Jesus says. Moses gave you circumcision 
Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? This is referring back to the invalid that he healed. John 5. You see what they're saying? Or what Jesus is saying? (laughs) You're fine with, with a small part of a man's body being cut and healed. But you get angry with me for healing a whole man's body on the Sabbath. You see, they were so fixated on the old code and the old covenant that they could not imagine what flourishing would look like when Jesus himself, to which the old code was pointing, came on the scene. They couldn't imagine what life in the new kingdom would look like. And the same thing can happen to us. We can lose hope because the wilderness journey gets long. And we forget what we have right now. When Jesus says in verse 39 that the the living water is the Holy Spirit and that the Spirit wouldn't come until Jesus was glorified, well, we stand on this side of that promise, meaning Jesus died, he rose from the dead. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's been glorified, which means the Spirit has been poured out. And the life of the kingdom is here, which means that there's flourishing to happen. In the kingdom, the future is always brighter. The future is always brighter because there's healing that's going to come and there's flourishing that's going to come. And yet it's so easy to lose hope. A lot of times when life gets hard, when it gets difficult, oftentimes we go stoic. We go stoic. We, we disengage with God. Or sometimes on the opposite end, we get passionately frustrated with God or we think he's punishing us for some wrongdoing or, or possibly, and this happens a lot, we just get cynical. We get pessimistic. We get a martyr complex of, I guess this is just my life. I'm just going to suffer. And we forget the hope of the rivers of living water of Jesus Christ by his spirit coming to bring flourishing. Listen, God is committed to your flourishing. Some of you need to hear that. He wants you to flourish. He wants you to live. He wants you to come alive. He longs for that for you. Question is how? What is is the hope in the wilderness? What is the hope when life is difficult? Listen to Deuteronomy chapter eight. This is right when God's people are in the wilderness. Life's hard, it's difficult. Verses two to three. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years into the wilderness. He humbled you and let you hunger. Let me pause. He let you hunger. Why? And fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. You know what that means. When the manna showed up on the ground, which was the dew in the morning, and they had more bread than they could ever eat, they had never seen that before. It was something new. God was doing something new. They'd never seen it. Why did he do it? That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. You you realize what that's saying? 
is that God is committed to your flourishing, but your flourishing happens when the word of God speaks to your heart and brings life and brings flourishing. One of the reasons why I think we lose hope often is because we have a very um, external and circumstantial view of flourishing. And yet what Jesus is saying here in John 7, when he stands up at the end of this feast and he says, rivers of living water will flow where? From out of your heart. He's speaking of internal flourishing. He's speaking of your heart coming to life, even in the midst of external circumstances that are really hard. That's why the apostle Paul, in a vast majority of his letters, when he prays, prays for internal flourishing of your heart, not external circumstantial flourishing. In fact, one of the places he says it is in Ephesians chapter three, verses 18 to 19. He says, he prays that you may have strength to comprehend. Listen to what he's saying, strength to comprehend from within. With all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's praying for internal flourishing of your heart that the rivers of living water would begin to flow. That's where hope starts. Hope is not birthed in external circumstantial uh, change. Hope is birthed in the heart with internal change. When God enlarges your heart to comprehend how much you are loved by him and how much he longs to heal you, in your heart, and one day physically. May not be till Jesus returns. It may be in a week or two. That's in his hands. But he is committed to having you flourish from the inside. That's not a question. He wants that. He longs for that. And when Jesus stood up at the end of this feast and said, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink, that's what he was saying. Come drink deeply of me and be healed and flourish and find life. So what thirst do you need Jesus to quench? Your thirst for comfort, your thirst for hope, and finally, your thirst for purpose. Notice the end of verse 38, what it says. It says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What that's saying is that out of the person who drinks deeply of Jesus who believes in Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and by his resurrection to forgive your sin, set you free, that when you believe that, that water, rivers of living water starting from Jesus flow through you and outward. At the end of this ceremony of the Feast of Booze, we've, we've looked at this water being poured out. What did it signify? It's Exodus 17. It's Ezekiel 47. It's also Revelation 22. Because Revelation 22 really speaks about what happens in Ezekiel 47 with the water flowing out of the temple, but brings it to completion. Listen to the first five verses of Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Here's flourishing. 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. You know what that means? Night, wilderness, exile, trial, hardship will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Did you hear what that said? They will reign. Not just, not, not just Jesus will reign. That's clear. They will reign. Meaning all those that are in Christ will reign. And so what we see is that Revelation 22, which paints this future picture, actually becomes a present reality in John 7. When Jesus stands up and says, I'm the river of living water, and out of your heart, if you're drinking deeply of Jesus, that this healing water, this life will flow. That Jesus Christ is the, is, the, is the fountain of living water and it will flow through you and it will bring healing. Romans 8 says that we are fellow heirs with Christ. That means that we reign with Christ now in him. That we're his ambassadors in this world that the river of living water that flows from Jesus to heal the nations, as we read in Revelation 22, is flowing now through his people. We have a True Green come treat our lawn every six weeks or so. And most of the time when they come to treat, they, they spray that liquid fertilizer all over the yard. But about twice a year, they spread solid fertilizer, the, the pellets, and every so often, I don't know what happens if the spreader malfunctions, but they spread it unevenly. And we know that because after two or three weeks and several rains, we see these like curved stripes throughout our yard, right? Where the fertilizer was just put on heavy. And where the fertilizer was on heavy, right? The, the grass grows taller, faster, and it's dark green. Jesus says, that when you drink deeply of him, that his life, the river of living water, his water flows through you to your workplace, to your neighborhood, to your school, to your sports team, that you begin to see life popping up around you because Jesus is flowing through you to display his greatness and his healing water and his ability to quench comfort and to quench the thirst for hope, which your neighbors have just like you. We all are thirsting for comfort. We're thirsting for hope. Now, here's what it means. You may hear that and say, well, great. So if I'm drinking deeply of Jesus, that my life is gonna just go so well that people will see it and go, oh, you have such a good, easy, comfortable life. How'd you get that? No, that's not what this is talking about. In fact, in the context here, is that when you're drinking deeply of Jesus and the difficulty of life comes, which it will, that you experience and display this comfort in uncomfortable circumstances, that you uh, experience and display this hope in hopeless situations, and your neighbors, those around you, see that and go, how? What fountain are you drinking from? 
because I want to drink from that fountain. And so out of his heart, rivers of living water flow. Out of Jesus' heart, through your heart, to the world around you. Why do I say we have a thirst for purpose and what does this have to do with it? There is no greater purpose than living as a co-heir with Christ, than being an ambassador for Christ, than living in this world to represent the beauty, the glory, the goodness, the healing that Jesus Christ brings. And that when you're drinking from Christ and you're living with him on mission and people around start to see how you find comfort and hope in very different ways and people start to drink deeply, potentially, it's in God's hands, but you experience a purpose that you were meant for. You're meant to display the goodness and the glory of Christ. And Jesus, who you reign with now, quenches that thirst for purpose. That Jesus quenches your thirst for comfort, he quenches your thirst for hope, and he quenches your thirst for purpose. All to his glory and for your good. Let's pray. Father, would you make us a people who drink deeply from your son, Jesus. Father, there are people in this room who are in incredibly difficult circumstances and situations. There are people in this room that have been in the, the hard part of life for a long time. And Jesus, we pray by your spirit that your living water would pour into their hearts that they would come alive because your spirit brings them to a place of coming alive. Father, would we believe that comfort only comes from your son, Jesus, that hope comes from your son, Jesus, who is bringing change and bringing flourishing, and that purpose comes from your son, Jesus. Father, as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, would you help us to drink, to eat, and to drink deeply? That we would find our thirst quenched. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.